Good morning, Crosswalk. How's everybody doing? Some energy. It is good to be with you all today, and to our online audience, welcome as well. I don't know how often um, I'll get to share the, the metaphorical pulpit that is here, um, but it is a privilege to get to do so. When I get the chance, uh, you're used to seeing me. I say used to, I've been here for all of like two seconds, but you're used to seeing me more in a speaking role. But it is a privilege to be up here uh, to share with you all this morning. And thank you to Tim uh, for moving some stuff around uh, so I could cover today's topic of uncomfortable worship. So before we get too far into this, let's bow our heads for a quick word of prayer. God, the soil is ripe. Prepare our hearts, prepare our minds for the word, and may your spirit rest in this house today. And may we be awakened and aware of your presence with us. Amen. All right, so we are in season two of the Uncomfortable series, week two, uh, talking about uncomfortable worship. So when you hear the phrase uncomfortable worship, there may be many things that come to mind. And I'm going to share a few that come to mind for me when I hear uncomfortable worship. And the first is when uncomfortable, worship is uncomfortable when it is poorly executed. Uh, you can tell maybe the band did not rehearse. They, they don't know their parts. Or maybe the people playing aren't super skilled at their craft, at their instruments. Uh, maybe some of you, uh, people at the, the 9 a.m. Uh, echoed this. They remembered this. But I think last year, you guys had someone on stage who played cello, who did not play cello, but they played it on stage, and someone who played piano who did not. Do you guys remember that? Okay, it was a great sermon illustration, apparently, because everyone is like, oh yeah, I've heard multiple people tell me it was the worst. It was terrible. So that is a good example, which is seared into your memory of, of uncomfortable worship or unskillful worship. Another way worship could be uncomfortable is if it is a context or a setting that is unfamiliar to you. Um, maybe this is a different cultural style of worship that you're just not used to. It's, it's different than your norm. Um, or maybe it's a different denomination's style of worship uh, from high church, Catholic mass, um, all the way to more charismatic Pentecostal circles. Uh, it's very different, and there's a lot in between there. So maybe you found yourself in settings where it's like, they just broke out the tambourines. I have never seen that. Or like they were waving flags over there um, where you've been uncomfortable. So those are types of uncomfortable worships potentially. But today I want to talk about another form of uncomfortable worship. And it's found uh, in the story of Mary at the house of Simon the leper. And it's, it's actually found in all four gospels. So clearly this was a story of significance. So we're going to read through Matthew's telling of this together this morning. I think it's really important that we read through this. It's in chapter 26. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have 
me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Powerful story. But if we're going to talk about this as a uncomfortable worship story, the the uncomfortable elements probably jump right out to you. But maybe less clear is how this is a moment of worship. So if we're going to talk about this, let's actually define or clarify what worship is a little bit. In his book, Exploring Worship, Bob Sorge, which is is, is an incredible book, by the way, it's an in-depth read on worship. He actually starts off talking about worship, saying we can't really define it uh, in one definition or one sentence. Um, And part of the, the reason behind that is so much of worship is between the heart of the worshiper and God. So there's a lot of different ways we could try to define worship, and a lot of them are true. But one he gives, he, he actually goes on after he says, we can't define it. He goes on to give 14 definitions for starters of defining worship. Um, and this is my favorite that he gives. He says, worship is our affirmative response to the self-revelation of the triune God. For the Christian, each act of life is an act of worship when it is done with love that responds to the Father's love. There's a couple words and phrases I want to highlight in there, and that is response. Worship is a response to God. And the the actual phrasing, which I hadn't heard articulated this way before, but I love how he says it, it's the response to the self-revelation of the triune God. Incredible. He concludes this section by by giving kind of a final word on, on defining worship. He says, Worship was never intended by God to be for the discussion of textbooks, but rather the communion with God experienced by his loved ones. So as we put these together, worship is our response to God's self-revelation, and it is communion. It's abiding with God. So if that's, what these, if that's how we were to define worship I think it's fair to say that Mary's encounter, her experience, was a worship service of sorts. Now, there's no sermon. Jesus spoke, I guess. uh, But, you know, there was no sermon. There was no music that we see in this passage. There is no sound check or call times or production or coffee. Um, We know there wasn't that. At least we know that much. Um, There weren't all these things that we would think of in a modern church or worship service today. But what was present was Mary pouring her love and her affection on Jesus. We read from Matthew, but the other parallel passages in Mark, Luke, and John give us a lot of some other descriptors or details for the story. And they tell us that she kissed his feet. She wiped his, she cried on his feet and she, she wiped his feet with her hair. And the, I think it's Mark or John that says, when she broke the alabaster jar, the fragrance filled the room. Oh, I love that as a metaphor for worship. Fragrance fills the room and those around us can't help but notice it. So as these things took place, as Mary proceeded this way, discomfort followed as we can clearly see. So let's, let's talk about some of the people who were probably uncomfortable uh, 
one passage, not the one we read, but another passage tells us that the Pharisees were there and uh, it says that they said, who is this woman, the sinful woman? They said, the sinful woman, and she does this to, to this guy. And if this is God, how could this be God? He should know she's a sinner. So we have the Pharisees that are uncomfortable. Uh, we have Simon, Simon the leper, whose house it's at. Tradition tells us that for a feast, the host would traditionally anoint the guests' heads, um, which maybe Simon did that. We don't know. But you can imagine if he didn't and he sees this woman doing this in this moment uh, in such an undignified way, he could feel a little bit uncomfortable. The disciples, the disciples were probably uncomfortable. Actually, not probably. It tells us that they were. (laughs) They were indignant and harshly rebuked her. They weren't sure what to make of what they were seeing. In her book called The Sing, Rachel Culver recounts this or expounds upon this, this, uh, this worship service. She says this. She says, the disciples, Pharisees, and other teachers saw Mary's extravagant worship. They smelled the fragrance, and instead of being moved to join in and participate, they merely watched her watched someone else worship Jesus. They were spectators of a worship service that Mary was leading. The disciples were so uncomfortable with the extravagance of her display that they criticized her worship, stating that she had given too much. These were the disciples who said this, not the bad guy religious Pharisees. These were the good guys, the ones who knew and loved Jesus. The disciples were the ones who would later start and lead the church. They were like you and me. So I don't know, maybe you found yourself in a situation that's uncomfortable, that's awkward. Like I said, you know, maybe this person is just like shouting in worship or they're really tone deaf or whatever it is. But maybe you found yourself in situations where someone else's affection being poured out on God was uncomfortable. And you might think, well, what's the problem? I can just kind of stand here, you know, stick to, I'm going to do me, stick to myself, just, you know, not worry about other people. The problem is that if we leave our hearts unchecked, if we leave our, our, the posture of our hearts unchecked, uncomfortable worship can lead to becoming a spectator and a critic at best. Let's, let's move on to Mary. Let's, that's, that's who we really want to talk about here, though is Mary in this encounter. So I would also say that while this experience was uncomfortable for all these people, it was also uncomfortable for Mary, but in a slightly different way. See, this worship was costly for her. It cost her something. Cost her financially, probably. Um, This alabaster jar that they say was worth a year's wages Uh, It could have cost her relationally if she had relational capital with the people there. Um, And it probably cost her her dignity. In his book, The Reset, Jeremy Riddle says this, Traditionally, there has been so much emphasis placed on how costly the alabaster flask of ointment was that this woman broke at the feet of Jesus. Some speculate it was worth a year of wages. But this wasn't just a costly jar of perfume she was breaking at the feet of Jesus. It was a costly act of worship for anyone who wished to retain an ounce of dignity and self-respect within his or her social context. 
what Mary offered that day was pure worship. It wasn't concerned with appearance. It wasn't concerned with what those around her thought. The only thing it was concerned with was moving the heart of her beloved, moving the heart of God. And pure worship can be uncomfortable. (laughs) But I would say that this is the best kind of worship that we can engage in. And ultimately, what moves the heart of God the most. Back to the, the reset, Jeremy Riddle says this, pure worship has nothing to gain in the realm of popularity. It could care less. It only hopes to touch the heart, to win the heart of the one it is worshiping. It is never driven by the benefit it gets. It is so blinded by the depth of its love, it cannot possibly adhere to what the social norms of the day deem to be acceptable. Pure worship is solely driven by the, I have to let you know. I have to communicate to you somehow, some way, how much you mean to me, how much you've touched my life. It's extreme. It will go to any length and pay any cost to demonstrate the depth of its love and gratitude. And he concludes this by by saying this, and I love how he words it. He says, know this, the next time you witness a scene where the whole room is made uncomfortable and offended by someone's over-the-top response in worship, there's a really good chance God felt loved by it. So if we take just one thing from Mary's worship experience, her worship moment, it should be that pure worship is costly worship. Pure worship is costly worship. So to talk more about this, we're going to go back to the Old Testament um, to a a story of David and the threshing floor. This, uh, This reading takes place in Samuel 24, 2 Samuel 24. And to give you guys some context on, you know, what led up to this event, it's important. So David had taken a census of the fighting men of Israel when God told him not to. We don't totally know the motivation for this, but we're left to speculate it was probably due to pride um, or arrogance and, and the military might that they had at the time. They had had a lot of success. But regardless, David takes the census, a plague breaks out. David recognizes, I, I messed up here, need to, to reconcile. And he repents. And that's where we pick up in our story here in 2 Samuel so it reads, on that day, Gad, Gab was the seer, the, kind of the voice of God speaking to David. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aronah looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the grounds. And Arna said, why has my Lord, the king, come to his servants? To buy your threshing floor, David answered. I can build, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. And Arna said to David, let my Lord, the king, take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and here the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, 
Arunah gives all this to the king. Arunah also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. Here's David's response. But the king replied to Arunah, no, I insist on paying you for it. For I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings, fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land. The plague on Israel was stopped. So maybe this is the first time you're hearing this story. Some of these these deep cut Old Testament stories don't always get the, the light, the limelight. But I still remember where I was, who I was talking to, all, all the details when I first heard this story and its application to worship. I was shocked. I was like mind blown. And the first thing that came to mind is like the hand in the cookie jar moment of like, oh, well, how many times have I given God worship that cost me nothing? Or to take it a step further, how many times as a worship leader have I given God worship that I didn't prepare enough for? Because I was like, ah, I know these songs. I'm good enough. I'll be okay. Or even worse, how many times have I facilitated worship as a worship leader and haven't spent any time worshiping on my own to prepare my own heart? Time in prayer, time in the word. How many times have I given God less than he deserves. Know this, worship without cost is worship without impact. See, when we step beyond our comfort zones, our norms in worship, we step beyond our feelings or maybe our you know, lack of feelings and we start to give God something that costs us something, it's costly to us, then we start to discover purity in worship to offer God our dignity, our self-respect, our personal, emotional, or financial comforts, that is to offer him something costly. In church, that moves his heart. It moves his heart. So we talk about these stories and read these stories, talk about costly worship, but most likely none of you are going to go buy a field and build an altar, and hopefully you're not going to sacrifice anything, because that's a problem. Um, So these stories may be a little bit unrelatable to our modern day worship experience. So what what does it look like practically? I think the thing that we need to lead off when talking about what does costly worship look like for us is to say that it is largely contextual between the worshiper and God. Because the cost looks different for everyone. What, what is, you know, stepping out into uncomfort, uncomfortable territory for one may not be the same for the other. So here are a few things. Um, maybe engaging physically is, is costly for you. It's uncomfortable. And, uh, but God loves to see our worship on display physically. It's a testament to others of our love for him and our affection. So maybe stepping out physically is, is tough. Uh, you know, raising your hands in the touchdown pose or like the $5 foot long or something. Find your thing, you know, find your thing. Or maybe engaging emotionally in worship is tough. You see that Mary wept at his feet. Maybe it's allowing your heart to be moved. Or actually, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's Costly worship is putting your emotions aside 
in saying, I'm going to worship. As Jesus said, true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Or maybe costly worship for you is just singing, just opening your mouth and letting a peep come out. Because here's the thing, it's different for everyone and God loves the smallest gesture of worship towards him because of who it's coming from. Ultimately, costly worship is allowing yourself to abide with your maker, to abide at the feet of Jesus, to give him the glory and the honor no matter what it takes. Growing up throughout a large portion of my life, I have felt discomfort when people say, God loves our worship. Man, he just loves the praises of his people. Oh, he loves to hear his people sing. Because when I would hear that, the, the image that would come into my mind is, man, God, like, this is a narcissistic God. Like, he needs his, these praises to validate his fragile ego. Like, this doesn't make any sense. And thank God that I had enough truth in my life at that time to recognize, like, oh, that doesn't match up with what I believe to be true about God that he is lowly, that he is meek, that he still is king, but he is all these qualities. He doesn't need our worship. And it honestly was only until recently <laughs> I thought this way, and I had this realization, and, and through, through studying, through talking to people, that God desires our worship because he longs for the heart of the worshiper. He doesn't just want to hear noise. He wants to see your heart on display. He doesn't need it to fulfill his ego. <laughs> He's not unconfident in who he is, but he loves it because our worship is our response of love to him. So let's talk about love real quick. Let's talk about love. This also helped seal this idea for me. How many of you, probably a lot of you in this room, have felt just going to start with the basics. Just like felt attraction for someone. Like a lot of you guys felt attraction for someone. There's some of y'all are married in here. You can raise your hands. Like Mike, raise your hand. I know you're married. Yeah, yeah. You guys have felt attraction. And it could just be like, oh, they're kind of cute. You know, kind of like them. Or you get to know them. You're like, kind of like that person. That's a cool feeling, right? It's a cool feeling. But what's even cooler is when they like you back. It's like, yeah, we're getting somewhere. Okay, okay. And to take a step further, when you say those three words, you stand on the precipice of the relationship and the risk, and you get those words out and you say, I love you. It's scary, but when they say it back, it's euphoric. Hopefully not a lot of you have said that and it hasn't been reciprocated. I'm sorry if that's a fragile, fragile spot. But if you've heard those words back, it is otherworldly. It's unreal. See, this is how God feels when we worship. When we break the alabaster jar in response to his character, his goodness, his mercy, his kindness. When we weep in his presence, when we, when we ponder the cross and the sacrifice that was made, when we're moved, when we kiss his feet in an undignified fashion, because he's worthy of it. He loves all of it. 
hearts because of who it's coming from. I'm going to close with this quote. It's uh, in, in the book Called to Sing by Rachel Culver. She says this. She says, your alabaster jar is a symbol of your life. It is a representation of everything you have wrapped up in a jar. It is your soul, your hopes, your dreams, joys, and emotions. It's your hurt, your pain, your sadness, and mourning. It is your act of worship, your surrender. It is all that you have to give, and it is of great worth. Be like Mary, who chose to offer her jar in obedient worship and was unmoved by the criticism and judgment of those around her. So there are many ways that worship can be uncomfortable. But may we lean into the discomfort of pure worship, costly worship, because this is where we find communion. This is where miracles happen. This is where we abide at the feet of Jesus and we give everything we have because he's worthy. He's worthy of it all. God, may our, our worship today rise up from a place of, of desire to be with you, to abide with you, and to give you the glory and honor because you're worth it. You're worthy of it all, God. May you give us confidence, each one of us here, to move the needle a little bit further into communion with you. Not worried about what this person thinks or what they see or anything else, God, but draw our hearts closer to you. Amen. Crosswalk, I invite you to stand with us in worship.